taking people out left and right and the numbers are going to go up and up and up exponentially. This is the apocalypse now. So the question is, what curtain has been revealed? What are, what are we seeing behind the curtain? So here we have Angel Moroni holding a trumpet at the spire of the temple and the earthquake strikes Utah, Salt Lake City and the trumpet falls. The trumpet falls. So what are we looking at here? This is uh, Friday, March 20th. No, no. Yesterday was Friday. So we're at the 21st, March 21st. How many days now has this crisis been drawing since... Let's review a little bit. Um, You came back from Africa. I flew out of Nairobi on the 19th of February. And at that point, I was ahead of the whole deal. And as soon as you just, got, just, just, just by a hair's breadth. Yeah, just by a hair's breadth. By the uh, then I landed in Orlando on the twentieth uh, afternoon, and within three or four or five days of that time, we started hearing a lot spoken about what was going on in China. That it was now leaving China. No, no longer contained in China. Heretofore, it had been we'd heard of it in Africa, but you know, only in the context of you know that it was all within the city of Wuhan. It was troubling, but it wasn't the kind of hysteria, and, and nor was it ever the kind of hysteria till after I'd got past Orlando, at least. Now, if there had been an outbreak near Fort Detrick, Maryland, uh, we might have suspected that there was a uh, weaponized virus that had been accidentally okay, released. Well, you're not uh, going to, no, no ninny is going to release it in the United States because it's too obvious. But everybody knows that Fort Detrick is where they mess around with these viruses. So that's not where they're going to be doing this. And one of the most well-known conspiracy theorists on the internet, which would be Alex Jones, I listened, I tuned in to him the other day just to see what he was talking about. And he's not calling this a false flag, America attacking itself. He's, he's on board with the official story that China is the culprit. And, and if this is a weaponized virus, which he says that it is, and the evidence would indicate that, but he's saying he's wanting to put the blame on the Chinese. And they have a facility there at Wuhan that does this research. Okay, So to your point, what sense would it make if you were going to weaponize a virus and then release it um, on the doorstep of your research facility. 
That makes no sense at all. People, people that try to uphold that argument are saying that they suspect that there was a big bleed off all of the uh, protesters and all of the rebels. Oh yeah, you have dissidents in dissidents. China yeah. and you have dissidents in Israel that are so being... So they just unload all of them. And uh, coincidentally, a lot of the people who are on the list of dissidents are being whisked away and people are told, oh, they had a temperature. And so we're taking them to a quarantine facility, of course, never to be seen again. So this is a very a great way of mopping up your dissident population. Well, it's possible that it's, it's conceivable, but the Chinese government can be inhumane and inhuman, but I just can't go that far. I don't think that they would have done this to themselves because they shut down their whole economy for no reason in that. They didn't need to shut down their economy to get rid of a few dissidents. That's for sure. They could have done done that any, anyhow. So once again, um, the evidence is that this is a weaponized virus, and, it, and it, the blame is being pointed to this facility at Wunang, saying that the Chinese are the ones that are guilty of creating the virus and they released it or it was leaked out or something. That narrative seems to me to ignore other facts that would uh, that we have collected throughout history and how the United States government operates in terms of you know um, regime change and CIA operations and assassinations and covert operations. There, it seems to me that whoever perpetrated this criminal act of releasing this bioweapon uh, did it to, in, in such a way to blame China. Well, that's what you always are going to do if you're doing a crime. You're going to point your finger away from yourself. Why is that a surprise? I mean, that's the default move. Well, what surprised me was when I went on to hear Alex Jones talking... Because I hadn't, I hadn't tuned into him for years. But I thought, well, let me go see what he's talking about. Because he's been predicting this for 15 years. Let me see what he's saying. And I was quite surprised to feel to find that he's not blaming the U.S. government. He's blaming the Chinese. And I'm thinking, well, I don't he's, think that he's the arbiter of all wisdom. And I think that he has a very jaundiced uh, ability, a view of actually, once we get in the predicament we're in in this country, actually nobody's able stand up and actually take it on if that was the need. All you have to do to cause a population of Americans to buggle, it turns out, is just to take away their blue roll and then they're absolutely <laughs> they're, they're brought down. There's nothing more you really need to do except then keep them in their houses and keep the get the armies on the streets. Speaking of toilet paper or as you said Lou Roll. Did you see the violinist in London? No. Uh, there was a couple of violinists. They walked into a grocery store and they started playing the music that was played on the Titanic. But they're playing it in the aisle where the toilet paper ought to be. Oh, wow. So behind them was the empty shelves where the toilet paper used wow. to be. And they're playing the violin. And uh, That is interesting. <laughs> Think about shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic for all the good it's going to do us right now, because whatever might be going on in terms of 
societal change, in terms of financial change, in terms of even government change that might fly even totally in the face of the Constitution. There is nothing we can do but rearrange the deck chairs under these circumstances. And how is it that you don't think that people know this, who have sought to bring this under their dominion for a long time? There's a lot of conspiracy theories uh, floating around. You know, we, we need to temper the word. The, the word conspiracy is not even, it should be struck from the dictionary. It's way overused, it's way misused. I think the forces that are trying to dominate are, are trying to have us use the word conspiracy. They're trying to attach the word conspiracy and, and conspiracy theorists to the phrase, to their activities, to make them seem, their activities seem plausible and to keep them from being questioned. Because... You know, we don't talk about what a military organization or group does as conspiracy. They're empowered to do it. We've given them money to do it. They're doing what we call now black ops operations. When is that referred to as a conspiracy? Now, But what is referred to as a conspiracy is if we point to what they're doing. It was Hitler that first made this phrase popular. He was fond of saying the conspiracy theorist in re reference to the fire, the Reichstag fire. Reichstag. So he called anybody who questioned that, um, you know, a self-inflicted wound, a, a false flag attack, he called that a conspiracy theory. And well, so, he didn't come up with this on his own. He, he, he may have been somewhat bright, but he wasn't. He wasn't any kind of a genius as far as I can tell, but he had been supported by geniuses that were using him for all of his worth. And they were working together. He was never working alone. So, of course, he could come up with a term like that. Who was his uh, propaganda minister? The, was it Himmler? Or? It might have been Himmler. I think, wasn't he famous for saying, um, the bigger the lie, the... Oh, yeah. Something. Just tell it more often. Just, yeah. yeah. Just keep repeating it, yeah. and people will believe it. So, uh, And that's what's being done now. You don't have to tell it verbally. You can send an image that reinforces it in someone's mind. Yes. Speak it again and again and again. Everywhere they look, there's evidence of it. This is the toilet paper symbolism. It's a, it's an attack. It's a, it's a propaganda. It's a... It's a of affecting the consciousness. It's psychological warfare. But who's by whom? The thing, the thing I'm saying about conspiracy is when people who are empowered and al already in the world they have power, whether they're through the banking system or through the political system per se or through the deep state, whatever. Even the deep state, you don't talk about what they're doing as conspiracy. But what I'm saying is that when someone is duly empowered to perform an act and they're expected to perform so there's no conspiracy there they're just doing what they do that's not a conspiracy they they have a philosophy they have an agenda they have people within their group you know that are aligned more so than you know probably others they there's there's probably you know, hawks, the ones that are more hawkish with it, and 
and there's ones that are so elite and so powerful, but not all of them are famous and powerful. But probably most of them are showing up to the Bilderberg Conference and stuff like this. So they're fairly, you know, but we don't even refer to them as conspirators. But why not? Why not? Why is that not a conspiracy? Because they're empowered. They're at that level, you know, they just get away with it. They can do what they do. So, the word conspiracy, if it doesn't apply to them in that situation, it certainly doesn't apply to us. So, we see this happening, going on, and, you know, the point is that when I talk about conspiracies, I think, you know, that there's a lot of uh, little things that people don't know that are... that. Well, okay, now, that's another point, is when when you point to the person who's raising the question about what is going on in the world, you call them a conspiracy theorist. You are engaging in conspiracy theorist, theorizing. Okay, conspiracy is a crime. Right. Conspiracy is a felony crime. You're calling that person having a malefic and even criminal intent that is yeah. even raising the question. Yeah, that's a subtle implication, and that's a misuse of the term. The whole term is completely being misused, in my view. It's just not, it's mm-hmm. not apropos at all. You know, there are people doing crimes, and there are people doing conspiracies and felonies. Right. You know, and they should be, but how do they deflect it? All they have to do, it's like saying anti-Semitic. Right. All they have to do is put up conspiracy. Right. Obviously, it reflects back to you because you're raising the question. It doesn't point to them because they're already under the color of authority. Right, so they've they've weaponized the term. Totally, just like anti-Semitism. Yeah, that's a weaponized term. And that's not an anti-Semitic statement. (laughs) Yeah, well, it might be considered an anti-Semitic. It will be. If I if I point out the fact people the people who are throwing this term around are not Semitic themselves, then then now we've got a oh, real now, conspiracy. Now, 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 it okay. works both ways, you know. I think you're in trouble. I know I'm in trouble. But so well, what does it mean to be Semitic? I mean the Arabs are Semitic, aren't they? Of course they are. Okay. But why is it that the word anti Semitic is only applied to people calling themselves being imagine. Jewish? I can't imagine. Okay. Can't imagine because so, of the, the Semites are anti-Semitic. All of them. <laughs> that's that's the point. All of them. <laughs> See. So you take a term and you give it a meaning that it doesn't have originally. You give it a new meaning and you weaponize it and you use it to to beat people down into submission and silence. And that's what this word term conspiracy theory. I mean, they they use it a lot against people who said that John F. Kennedy was. Uh, killed by his own government. Oh, that, 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 I mean... Nobody would call the bad pigs a conspiracy. Yeah, no one... No Even one. though the president himself didn't know about it until they were asking him for air support. It was treasonable. Well, that's what pissed him off, and that's why he said he was going to break the CIA into a thousand pieces. And had he lived, he would have done, and that's what they knew. So that's where you look. Right, so he declared war on the deep state. So is the deep state and CIA, are they conspirators? Well, that's a question. No, they've never been called. In my hearing, in my yeah. lifetime, I've never heard them called conspiracy. Right. Because because they're duly empowered. Right. They're under the color of authority. Right. The fact is, when you speak about them possibly being involved, 
you're not under the color of authority. Right. So we can shoot you down, and then our next move will be to kind of smear your character. Oh, let me tell you, uh, many times I have, uh, people have raised questions, and I have pushed back and say, well, I wouldn't be so sure about that. That sounds like something the CIA would do. I'll give you an example. Um, there was a case where in China not so long ago, it was being reported people in the streets of Hong Kong were uh, doing the Pledge of Allegiance or they were singing the Star Spangled Banner or something of that nature. And, the, and I listened to these two strangers at the library talking about it and they were saying, oh, this is great, you know, liberty's breaking out all over the world and stuff. And I said, hmm, well, you know, it sounds like a CIA operation to me. Like it. I said, it sounds like what the CIA does. And when I said that, one guy just went berserk. He wasn't trying to hear that. And then with this coronavirus, you know, there's this guy I work with, and he's a great guy, I like him a lot, but he has this tendency to get really angry really quickly. And if we get too busy, like there's too many orders, and he has to cook a bunch of food, he'll panic and he'll lose it. Okay? So he's he's fragile in this way like you know there's a limit of what he what how much stress he can take how much information he can take you know, he'll panic and um, so when I mentioned to him the other day that this virus uh, the coronavirus appears to have been uh, weaponized immediately as soon as I said weaponized immediately he just goes oh don't talk to me okay and um, it's like wow and then I remember another occasion, somebody making a joke about these people who are hot. They don't want to immunize their children. And they're thinking, oh, they're a bunch of idiots because they're hearing this on the news. They're being told they're a bunch of idiots. So now they're repeating it and they're expecting me to validate that. And I say, well, I don't find humor in that at all. In fact, if I had children, I wouldn't vaccinate them. Oh, put mercury oh. and all of these things and, and cause birth defects? Well, that's what I told them. I said, look, there's the marisol in the, in the, and it's mercury. Mercury is toxic. It's one of the worst things you can put in your body. But I couldn't even get it out. As soon as I said the marisol is in the vaccine, they just shut down. They were just like, oh, don't talk to me. Oh, I don't want to hear this. I'm not going to talk. We're not having this conversation. We're not having this conversation. We're not having this conversation. But that's, that's where people differ most widely, in my view, is not even, not physically, but mentally in terms of their profile of what they are willing to think about and what they are not willing to think about. And because they have, you know, free will, they can, everybody can choose, and, and it's valid for them. They don't need to fight for it, argue for it, support it, beg for it, it's theirs. Whatever they want to think about, whatever they don't want to think about. However they want to think about it. The Course says, show me the world that I want to see. So that's how they're operating. They they want to see the way they want to see. Okay? So they want confirmation of what they already believe. They want confirmation of the meaning that they've already ascribed to certain things that they've constructed for the purpose of finding meaning in what they do and what they ex seem to experience. So if you pull the carpet out from under them, of course, their free will is going to say, no, don't. And you have to give them that. It's not kind or loving then to constantly press on them, in my view, you know, a, a worldview that is at odds with what they're trying, the one they're trying to insufflate and support and see as it were 
if they could see the world the way that they want it to be, and they put all of this effort into it, what the Course says, you know, just in a, in a magnificent energy that they have to create this world, the kind and loving thing is not to come and try to rip it out from under because they obviously have already made their choice and they've made it clear and they do make it clear they're, they're, these people the more adamant they are they, they don't give subtle hints they already tell people left and right I am very specific and particular about what I'm willing to see as reality so there's a fear that produces defensiveness and attack anything that's above your pay grade is something you're not supposed to speak on or talk about or and, even and what is the cue that you're given that you're not that it's above your pay grade and you're not supposed to speak about it because obviously you don't know what other people know that have determined what the stance is to be they know you do not know so what's this called you're a conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. They know you don't know, but mm -hmm. you're the one that's making the commotion and talking about stuff you don't know about, and it's stuff that's going to lead to a harm for you or somebody else if you persist. That's a conspiracy theorist, as it's <clears throat> defined in the society, and what I'm saying is, if you think that you can undermine or overturn or bring something to light that isn't known, that wants to be known then we're going to tell you, we're going to give you a signal that you are beneath the level that could meaningfully offer any information or insight or anything new to the question. That code is going to be conspiracy theories. So that the most egregious, you could have a takeover of the United States economy, government, you name it. And it will... None dare call it conspiracy. None dare call it conspiracy, right. And that's what we are facing. I mean, the book, None Dare it Call It Conspiracy, was written in 67, if I'm not mistaken. It was during, I think, uh, when Goldwater was running for president. And the people who got behind that book and supported it were the John Birch Society. And there was another book called None Dare Call It Treason. And I've read both of these books. And pivotal... Uh, books at the time because there wouldn't have been a John Birch Society without these two books. Mm. People can go back, they're open secrets, you know, I don't call it conspiracy theory, I call it open secrets. You know, a lot of things can be verified just on Wikipedia alone, you can go and find this stuff. So it's, um, now the word conspiracy was uh, the title of a book that was written by H.G. Wells. Uh, the title of the book was The Open Conspiracy. And that book was published in 1928. Okay. No, that's a bit of an oxymoron. Is it not open conspiracy? Yeah. What can that mean? Is there a, is there a paradox there? Or well, the subtitle an was irony. The, it, the book was published um, several times. The first time was I think called "What's the most important thing I can do with my life?" Uh, was the first title, and then it was changed to "Open Conspiracy Blueprint for World Commonwealth." And then changed again to open conspiracy blueprint for new world order. Mm. So it had like three or four titles. But so was this the first appearance of the project for the new American century, or what? <laughs> well, this was 1928, and right. you know H.G. Wells was a Fabian socialist. 
So this was the headline a few days ago, was that the, the trumpet in the hands of the angel, I guess that's supposed to be Angel Moriah? Angel Moroni. Moroni. So here we have Angel Moroni holding a trumpet at the spire of the temple, and the earthquake strikes Utah, Salt Lake City, and the trumpet falls. The trumpet falls. And, I mean, this is what we're talking about, uh, how symbolic of what's going on in the world. We're looking at a forced quarantine of major cities with, with martial law, with troops in the streets. Uh, New York City and L.A. L.A. has let people out of jail. Uh, because they don't want them dying in the jail. Why? What would be the symbolism of the trumpet falling? You don't find any symbolism in that? I do. Okay. So let's question what would the symbolism be. First of all, I would say that we're not going to be looking to the Mormon church for our salvation. That would be my interpretation. But I think that other people who have n no frame of reference might see this as... Uh, being the in, a symbol of the end of the world, you know, the apocalypse. If we're looking anywhere outside of ourselves to understand how we're going to come to salvation, then we're not obviously going to in this lifetime, a number one. So it's not just the Mormon church. But, I, I mean, if you do not seek outside yourself, this depends on you to actually, as... Bible says work out your salvation in my view. It's so imperative to know this. You're not going to be saved by a church, a dogma, a doctrine. You're going to be saved by your heart becoming feather light. Yes. Under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. So, anyway, to me, when that trumpet falls out of the angel's hand and falls to the ground five stories below or whatever, I guess. I don't know what became of it, whether it shattered or what, but it it is gone, and the symbolism is that now no one is going to sound the alarm. Mm. That is very symbolic. You know, the, 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 the trumpet, of course, is referencing, in most people's mind, at least in mine, symbolically, to the trumpet's at the end of time. There's supposed Absolutely. to be seven trumpets uh, in, yep. referenced in the book of Revelation. This is going to signal the end of the world. So, uh, to so have what happens, the trumpet absolutely, mm. in an earthquake, falls to mm. the ground. It's silenced. Silenced. I hadn't thought about it yeah. that way. How interesting. No, there, there is no one who will give the alarm because they're totally taken in by what's happening. If they make a protest, they will be shut down very quickly and very totally. So the trumpet call is not going to be heard. It's going to go into oblivion. You said that the trumpet means that there's not going to be... People will fall on deaf ears. People are not hearing the trumpet call. What is it behind the curtain that they're not seeing that should be obvious, that's now revealed? This was planned. This was put together. And, yeah, and then I see this, and I see this, and I see this, and of course there's this. And, and then you realize it's orchestrated. We need to realize that we're in a time of tremendous transition, which has the chickens are coming home to roost. This has been waiting to unfold. Literally, people have been waiting to roll it out for a long time. 
they've been very studious and very uh, industrious in getting it ready, planning it. They're, you have to give it, you know, you have to realize this is, this is a piece of work. It's really a piece of work. So, it's a very historic piece of work. So, uh, but people, people are paying bitterly a very dear price for for this rollout. What's the end game? I don't think we can perfectly well see that yet. But we we don't know. I think we're going to a first of all, the end game will feature a massive shift of wealth further up towards the top from all what this podcast has done for those who listen to it it's taken it's allowed them to change their mind from thinking about the apocalypse now as the end of the world as the as we know it with the collapse of our economy and the collapse of society and all of that that brings fear and with it judgment and uh, attack because that's what we're conditioned by the ego to do so that all of that fear and attack that's that's boiling and bubbling into the surface right now by uh, across the globe the whole world is in a, is a fever pitch of fear and attack going on right now you know families are are isolated and quarantined together and what are they doing they're doing the fear and attack with each other. There's fathers attacking sons and, and sons attacking fathers. That's happening right now because they're in close proximity and outside the door, there's this craziness going on. And so the ego continues to do what the ego does, the fear and attack. And so it's reached a fever pitch. And that's what we're, you know, the apocalypse now. That's what people understand when they hear the term apocalypse now. That's what they can relate to. But what we're presenting, you and I, talking about the spiritual matters, is a different apocalypse now that takes that and gives it a whole different meaning, which which really means to step into your essence, to step into your being, to become able to love yourself, God, and others because of your knowledge of who you are, who you truly are, not this ego seeking validation that's not who you are the true essence of who you are is god created you holy and so you remain holy the course says that i remain as god created me god is holy he cannot have created something that's not holy if god created me holy and i remain as i was created i remain holy if God created me and all else in creation, which are my brothers and sisters, they were as well created holy. Therefore, I have only holy brothers and sisters in all creation. And you think maybe I'm beyond repair, I'm unredeemable, but that is not true. So the apocalypse, the revelation, is that you can now, now, right now, have a relationship with God in which 
being obedient is effortless. You know, it's, it's really hard for us to grasp the fact, grapple with it, that our perception is limited, that it's distorted, is uh, twisted even so many times. Well, this is why I go back to the idea of salvation and redemption. You know, Jesus' life, he opened the way to redeem humanity. And so I, I think that that word redeem and redeemer is amazing and, and deeply powerful and, and should invoke emotion. But when I hear the word savior, it's like, okay, he did all the work that I couldn't do and he's my savior and I'm, I'm just some worthless piece of crap. If it wasn't for him, I'd be nothing. And to me, there's a, there's a big difference between these two thought processes. To say that, you know, I am saved has one implication, and to say that I am redeemed has a different meaning altogether. You know, salvation is suggests that it's something that you receive, and that before you received it, you were of no value. And then when you receive it, now it's done, and you can look back at it. Let me just say, let me stop right there. This is key. What you said is key. When you believe that you were of no value, you are not loving yourself. You are not capable of loving yourself. When you are not capable of loving yourself, you are not capable of loving others. When you are not capable of loving others, you are not capable of loving God. Is there a doubt? There is the need as a human being to be able to love ourselves, to love others, to love God. And this is the new commandment that Jesus gave. All others. This is the one. This is it. Forget everything else. Put everything in this basket. This is what counts. Right. Yeah, this is this is this this is salvation. And what does it mean to obey? That means that you step into your beingness, understand who you really are on the other side, that you are made of the same stuff that Jesus is made of, that you that if 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 Jesus can say that God is my father and we can say God is our father. If, if if that is true, if God is our father, then all of these human beings running around being messy are, in fact, our holy brothers and sisters, and there's no separation there. This is the problem that I find with religious people. Now, they, it, may, they may decry that, and they may be very hostile, and you're saying that they are your holy brothers and sisters. When they insist that they are defiled, debased and debauched and all of these things and that they need to appeal for the holy to receive the defiled to the to the all to receive the nothing but you know is this worshipful can you be obedient with that kind of mentality what are you being obedient to is the question what are you worshiping you can't love yourself and you can't love others and you 
can't love God, where is the obedience? Exactly. See, this is the linchpin. And so I'm, make, I'm splitting hairs between salvation and redemption because salvation tends to look back and say, I was saved in 1978 when I was 12 years old and I prayed Jesus into my heart and I got saved. Okay? But that's something I find problematic because you're still not accepting your true essence, your true nature. You're still not loving yourself. You're still not loving others. And you're still not able to love God. So how is that salvation? Because you believed a proposition, somebody put forward some doctrine, some, and you, you accepted it. And maybe you had a religious experience at the time. You might have cried because you felt like something was transformative. You were you were going from uh, you were on your way to hell, and now you're on your way to heaven. That's kind of how it's presented, and you wanted that. So you 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 broke down and confessed a sin that felt you felt guilty about. You had a religious experience. You cried. You had tears. There was this uh, healing that took place at the time, but you're looking back at it as something that happened years ago, and your life hasn't really changed. So there seems to be a problem here with this idea of salvation as it's being presented. And I'm saying that's why I prefer the word redemption, because redemption is well, you not... May, you may prefer it. You can, you're well entitled to prefer it, but others are going to have to come to a, their own understanding of I'm, I'm not pushing my view on anyone. Right. I'm simply trying to articulate what redemption means as opposed to the traditional interpretation of salvation, which I'm rejecting. What I'm saying is redemption is what you're describing. Okay, redemption, what does it mean to be unredeemable? What does that mean? If something is unredeemable, what does it mean? Like if I have a coupon and it's the date has passed and I try to go into the store and they'll say to me, I'm sorry, uh, this coupon was dated for a month ago and it's it's unredeemable. I can't use it. It's, it's no longer effective. It's not going it, to, I can't give you the discount. I'm sorry. Because the coupon is unredeemable. Some people feel like they're unredeemable. All right. And the thing about it is, is what, what's worse they feel others are That's what's worse. And they label other people as unredeemable. Right. And, and so this is a problem. That judgment that we make of other people is uh, part of it. Yes. So so you you've articulated uh, what salvation is, and now I'm trying to, in my own words, come to some um, uh, understanding of what it means to be redeemable. And what I'm saying is that being redeemable means that uh, there's a continuous process of uh, where you're redeemed on a daily basis. You're, it's not something that you're looking back at and saying that I got saved back in you know 1987 you know, at this particular church and I got baptized or whatever. These things happened and it was in the past. But being redeemed is something new and fresh every day. It's a, it implies more of a continuous process. And the problem I have with this label that's thrown around called salvation is it's always looking backward. Well, it, we could go back to that statement of that was then, this is now. Yes. Whenever we're really hooked up with spirit and in presence, that is the now. And we have to see from that position. We cannot think or see or um, love from the past. Have to love they can see the now. And when I say Jesus is my redeemer, that's what I'm saying. Now when people say Jesus saved me, 
they put the saved at the end as if it, I am saved I was saved and this to me is just a form of arrogance and, if, and it, it, it lends itself to the separation mentality of saying some people are saved and some people aren't to a lesser extent it goes on with with people saying that they when I became enlightened he became yeah. enlightened yeah okay then the enlightenment has to be an attribute of the now right you have to be in the light right now right yes so a satori is a now experience it you is. don't go back and That's say right. oh I had satori 20 right. years ago right what good is that so the thing is being redeemed saying that Jesus is my redeemer is much more powerful of an idea than to say that I was saved. We have to realize here that the understanding of salvation may be a little bit remiss when you believe that it was something in the past. I mean, unless you're immersed in it in the present moment as well, unless you realize that your every breath, that your every expression of life as uh, a reflection of God Most High and an extension of God Most High is shared with your higher self, your true being that's in heaven. Unless you can realize that and, and make that uh, leap in understanding your identity, then you have not comprehended what salvation was. Or what it is. Well, in terms of the past and saying, I was saved. If right. you say, I was saved, what did that mean? That means now you're not condemned in heaven. The Course says you were never condemned in heaven. You were not condemned because why? You were holy. You had not changed. You could not change yourself by wanting to, or by deception, or by confusion, change, or be changed by forces that you considered greater than yourself in the physical, or changed even by demons or principalities or powers. They could not change you. Right. Oh, they're wanting to. Right. So in, in order to make a confession of faith that is um, present moment now and meaningful and powerful and radiant in the world and affecting other people and, and spilling over, to change the world, an individual must come to a place of saying that Jesus is my Redeemer. And what that means is, He's my Redeemer today. He's my Redeemer right if now. He's your Redeemer right now, though He's also your Savior. So if you say He's my Savior, but you say I'm nothing, I'm worthless, or they're nothing and they're worthless, you've just had a tremendous conflict arise in my view. There's no way that you can possibly say both at the same time. But people do, and this is the problem I have with any religious people I encounter. It doesn't matter if they're mainline uh, Church of Christ or if they're you know Church of God or some other denomination or uh, non-denominational as they like to call themselves, or if it's like some kind of sect like the cult, uh, some kind of cult you might identify, you know, maybe calling themselves being Mormon or Latter Day Saint or maybe Jehovah's Witness or whatever. It doesn't matter because they all have this mentality that we're talking about where they fall into this trap of, you know, of, of some of them have the experience of Jesus as a Redeemer, but then there's people around them within the same congregation 
they're saying, I'm saved and Jesus saved me. And these are not the same thing. It's the difference between being a structure and being in mysticism. And the people who are the mystics understand that being a, that Jesus is their redeemer, that that means now, and that it, it enables them to love themselves, to love others, and to love God. Okay, and they're experiencing that. It doesn't matter what uh, traditions they've been taught. They're experiencing it. A sliding scale. This is somewhat a continuum. That people began through their path, through life, they are on a journey to understanding this, and they're at different points of it being revealed to them. Right. So, but the key they can be in a group or or a sect or a church or whatever, but the, they may have varying degrees of insight into this as they go through. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. They're not cut off from. So I kind of explain it as being levels of spiritual awareness. And the first level being structure, that's where you think you've been saved. And you look back at it as an event that's passed you by, and now you're going on about your business. But, you know, at least you know you're going to go to heaven. But in that kind of mentality, it's very easy to become self-righteous and judge other people and say, you know, the people in my church are brothers and sisters, and God is but our what Father. What kind of heaven can that possibly be? But you know what I'm talking about. This is annoying to me. You encounter these church people who say that they call each other brother and sister, but you have to be a member of their church. You have to be baptized into their dogma and doctrine in order to be considered a brother and sister. You they, have to show them the world that they want to see. And well, so this is the structure that I'm talking about. People, love. a lot of religious people are embedded in structure. That's a lower level of spiritual awareness. And then as they... As they escape that because of the influence of secular, you know, humanism and postmodernism and the culture of our society and atheism and agnosticism and all the rest of it, they kind of start to distance themselves from the church because maybe they were hurt, maybe somebody insulted them, maybe they weren't treated the way they think they should have been well, treated. Not only that, but flat out ambivalence. Ambivalence rules the day. Is there going to be dubious of even sometimes of the things that they've thought that they learned in a church setting or wherever, whatever they think they believe, they're going to be ambivalent about. And why? Because they put salvation in the past, and now they're moving on with their life. See, if, if Jesus is not the Redeemer now... He goes naked. Yes. And that's what I'm saying. The left brain is always in conflict and in self-talk, back and forth, back and forth. Right. And that leads you from structure into skepticism. Because what is skepticism? It's just the left brain doing what its left brain does. And you're, you're saying that skepticism is a part of brain function. Can we not be skeptical about world events and national current events? We're not skeptical. But we train our skepticism on, on our spiritual awareness. It seems to be true. Yeah. The structure should not be questioned, okay? And so what happens is when you do start to question the structure of religion and you pull yourself out of it, you're just stepping into a new structure, and that's the scientific worldview. And that includes uh, government. So we have a democracy. The democracy is going to tell us how we should think and feel, and we think that, well, it's legitimate because it's, just, it's empowered by the people and we voted for our elected officials and democracy has legitimacy have and all these ideas that we think are meaningful that aren't even necessarily borne out deeper inspection platitudes and ways of justifying 
us seeing the, the world that we want to see in a consensus reality. Consensus it reality. It isn't even the way we decided to see it. That's right. We decided to join the That's way right. others want to see it. That's right. It's called an ideology. And, you know, in the United States, it's, it's the ideology of democracy. But in, uh, in, in China at one time, it was the ideology of Confucianism. Okay? So, and in other parts of the world, in other parts of times, there's always been some kind of a structure imposed on people to control the population. And people were, are, there to be a good citizen, you had to submit and adopt and host the ideology. It had to become part of your identity. You had to accept it without question. And if anybody around you wasn't on board, then, you know, you had to let them know that, you know, that they were on the in trouble if they kept thinking that way. Whatever time you would come into, whatever place you would come into, you would notice, if you were aware and you could compare it to anything else, you would realize that you had entered a consensus reality. And the hallmark of that consensus reality was this narrative that you were saddled with basically like an albatross at birth. You had to work out for yourself how that could be personalized to your own understanding and your own purposes as an ego being. And that was life on earth, was to be an ego being under the uh, uh, shadow or a, under the tutelage of a Consensus reality yeah. that varied by society and culture, and but the one and time, time yeah. and place, totally, yeah. there, absolutely varied to a to an amazing extent, geographically and from generation to generation, and now in the recent generations, even within the generation, yeah, things are happening so fast. Now, I mentioned Confucianism in China. That's obviously an ideology that was being imposed on people in order to create order, in order for the government to function, in order to create control of society. It was And it was a belief system, it was an ideology. But you know, there was a, a, an alternative view, uh, which was um, a mysticism that was uh, called Taoism. And one of the ideas of the Taoist uh, philosophy is this concept of Wu Wei. And, uh, so Wu Wei is like uh, doing without doing. It's effortless, okay? And this is very hard for people who are embedded in an ideology to comprehend or understand because um, ideology is such that, you know, you're going to be a good boy if you, if you accept the ideology. You're going to get patted on the head and you're going to get the rewards that society offers to people who adopt our ideology. And so you've been so conditioned to be a good boy that when uh, someone comes along and starts to present to you this idea of uh, living your life in harmony with nature and living an effortless existence and being in harmony, loving others, loving yourself and loving God, just a, a natural state of being, that, that that seems alien to you. It seems foreign to you. It seems dangerous to you. It's, and you don't even want to entertain it. You can't even comprehend it. Why do you suppose that is? It's brainwashing. People are completely brainwashed by... So, how do you avoid that? You step into the now. Mm -hmm. In the now, it's fluid. Right. It's very mobile. It's unrestricted. And you're not working it. Right. And when you try to bring up the past and interpret the past and 
enforce judgments about the past, as varied as they may be, uh, you're working hard. When you try to look into the future and assign uh, outcomes that are to your liking, extend judgments that you've made about people and things and forces outside yourself seemingly, and extend them into the future, that's that same work. You're not at rest, you're not at peace. You're working very hard, as hard as you can with all of your intelligences, to really avoid, you're doing it, to avoid the now, which is effortless. Yes, and so that's what I call mysticism, or the third stage of spiritual awareness. Now, the thing is, when people get, when people leave the structure of religion and they go into skepticism, atheism, and what have you, they t- adopt a scientific view, they think that they're free. And nobody is more enslaved than someone who thinks that they're free. So the problem with skepticism, that stage of so-called spiritual awareness, is that when you fall into that, it's very difficult to get out. How are you going to then move on to becoming mystic? You know, the transition needs to be quick. You need to go from beliefism and structure and thinking that salvation is in the past to coming into the present moment, understanding that, that for salvation to have meaning, you have to be able to say that Jesus is my Redeemer. And if, and that needs to transform how you see yourself, how you see others, and how you worship God. All of that needs to be present in the present moment. Not something that's tied to ideology, or a belief, or a doctrine, or some propositional knowledge. That's the structure you're leaving behind. And you can move into mysticism. You know, what, what was called Taoism. Okay? The Wu Wei. The present moment in harmony with God and nature and others. You can move into that without getting stuck in skepticism. But you do kind of have to go through it, in my view. You have to kind of move through it. But some people get stuck there. And that why, be- why do that? It's because of their baggage. It's because of their resentments, their hostilities, their bitterness. They have become bitter through right, life. Right. And what and they kept reinforcing their narrative. Right. To make it real. Right. How they were the victim. How other people did not love them in the way they wanted and needed to be loved. Right. How people put them through things. How people were not faithful to them. How people were not emotionally present for them. Right. On and on. Right. Okay. And then you become bitter. And the bitterness is actually a chain of grievances. Yeah. And... Course in Miracles says that grievances are the block to forgiveness. You cannot forgive and you cannot love when you are blinded by a grievance. It's like a shield, the Course says, that you put up between you and your holy brother or sister. You put up this shield so that you protect yourself, your ego does, from seeing them. You don't even see them. You have this hostility, you have all this emotion, rant and rave or go on or whatever, you're not even seeing them. This is just some fire that's burning in your brain, independently, it isn't even meaningful. You cannot ascribe significance to them, because you don't see your holy brother and sister as they are in this situation. So, this fire has to be put out, and you have to be willing to let it go out. And, and Jesus was you, the... As long as you cling to and cherish your, 
your bitterness, mm -hmm. your grievances. Mm -hmm. You cannot move. Right. You cannot move. You've right. got to put the shield down and be willing to see. Right. Yeah, that's why people get stuck in this skepticism uh, stage of life and, and spiritual awareness they, because they, they have a chain of grievances and they can't put it down. And they do keep repeating it. It's a narrative that plays in their head over and over again. Well, they and, want meaning. They want to find meaning right. for their suffering as they see it. Yeah. If you find that you're easily uh, picked as a victim and you can portray that to other people, then they can give their assent to you and reinforce that perception that you've once again been victimized. Uh, they, they can have compassion on you. They can support you. They can, you can find meaning. In, at least in that much. Well, it's not meaning, it's validation. It's ego. Well, for you at that level, that's the that's what, meaning that you're aware of. Right. You're, you're well, meaning, yeah. but what is what meaning are you even really able to give anything at that point? Well, I'm just, let's call it what it is. It's ego validation. You're calling it meaning. You say you want to find meaning. That's what, well, you, that's what you're Validation ego. is an attempt to make something. A number one real and valid and true and meaningful, but you cannot rationally apply these to physicality because it doesn't exist on that level. That is a, I think that was what the Course would refer to as level confusion. Mm -hmm. You know, you are really not in that level that you think you are. Therefore, the making that level valid is not going to help you. You're not even that. You're not even there. So yes, you, you, can, you can attempt to put all your energy into validating what is not real. All you're doing is trying to make it real. And it's a lot of work. A lot of work. The Course says it's a lot of work. And people spend a, a, a mass amount of energy, and mental energy, on this ego validation thing. You know, it's just continuous. But it never... It's like, okay, it's the opposite of being redeemed. It's an attempt to redeem yourself. And it, it's a lot of work. It, it, and you think that that's how you're going to find meaning. But it's just ego validation. You cannot redeem yourself. And the, the, the end result of ego validation is believing that you lack value and worth. And that others lack value and worth. It's all based on separation and judgment. And this, this absolutely boils everything down. To the bones, there's nothing left. There, in your mind, you have devalued and disvalued yourself and others, dispirited yourself and others. Why? You, the Course says you have, you know, just missed so many opportunities to gladden yourself. You could have been happy. You could have lived a joyous, victorious life, but you weren't really feeling it. You weren't going to become aware of it because you cherished, in your ambivalence, at best, you cherished still your baggage, your grievances. You prized your grievances as you licked your wounds. You would not let them go. You said that licking them was solving and healing them, and yet, strangely, they don't progress. You don't progress. You stay and cherishing and festering for 50 years or however long it could be till all of your earth time 
And when you cross, uh, there's no ego. The ego, you check your ego at the door. It's out. So is everything the ego believed in. So everything it fought for. Everything it prized. Everything it hoped for. It is in there. You checked it at the door. You experienced that because you crossed over and came back. So you experienced the apocalypse. What you're describing is the apocalypse. That means the curtain is being raised. And so that's what apocalypse means. And so the curtain being raised when means that... When one curtain goes up, the other, believe me, went down. Part of metanoia, and I really want to emphasize this, is really my cap on, on everything I've said. I want to drive home a realization to people that would accept what I'm saying. Please realize that you are not called to see yourself as a walking wounded, to see yourself as damaged goods, or to see others that way either. But you are called to a life of remaining as God created you in grandeur, in love, in joy, in light. You do not have to be in enmity with God as being separate because you never could have been and you never were separate. But you need to deliberately join with God. You need to embrace the oneness and the wholeness that God has created you with in mercy and in kindness. I mean, the goodness of God has been revealed in this and it is staggering unspeakable you know but in it being ours we could exist in a so-called life without ever acting on it without ever claiming it but all along we'd have to live in ignominy and in enmity and without enmity with ourselves enmity with others and enmity with God because of some really distorted ideas that were producing antagonism in us, that were comprising our baggage, that was we were unwilling to let go of these cherished uh, grievances. So they block our vision. They block our ability to love. And we can put the shield down. We can move forward can take the hand of the Savior and cross that bridge to the altar and lay all these things down and receive a full load of mercy and grace that will last us forever and transform not only our understanding of true life, but actually transform, you know, what we and when we do that, we're in a safe place. And when we're in a safe place, we radiate from our heart the love that's naturally existent. And it permeates the universe. It's non-local. It affects everyone, even at a distance. Uh, certainly in close proximity. But there's evidence when people are emotionally connected, then you can separate them at a great distance and they can still communicate like telepathically. 
So you can send light to anyone that you're emotionally connected with. And this is what needs to be happening at this particular time. There needs to be... This is the characteristic of the now. Right. You're actually... You seem to be in time in the now, but there's a timelessness and a spacelessness. Right. There, it's as if you had a wormhole into another dimension. That's what the now really is. There's been a, a book that was written, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And this is very fascinating because they've done scientific research and used methods to ensure that there was no way that this dog knew when the owner was coming home. But, uh, they, but it did. And there was a percentage it's of... not only dogs, but it's cats. Yes, cats too. You know, the thing about cats is they know when you're going to take them to the veterinarian. Yeah. If you think you're going to take the cat to a vet, the cat disappears. And, and a lot of veterinarians know this, and so they don't make cat appointments because they always cancel because the owner can't find the cat because they had the intention to take the cat to the vet and the cat says, no, I'm not going, I'm out of here. And it runs away. So there is a telepathic thing going on with the cats that are attached, emotionally connected to their owners, and that's not every cat. And there's dogs that are emotionally connected to their owners, and that's not every dog. But when you have that emotional connection, uh, cats and dogs with people, then they can sense things. They know when you're going to take them to the vet. They know when you're going to come home. They'll wait for you at the door. I mean, so if cats and dogs can telepathically connect with a human, why can't humans connect with each other? Oh, they can. They definitely can. And that's what sending the light is about. When you step into the mystical level of awareness and you're in that space, you must also recognize that you have work to do. And it's not work on getting yourself to heaven because you're already understanding that that's a present moment reality. But the work that needs to be done is to send the light to those people you're emotionally connected to, to be able to have a, a spiritual practice where you can send the light. It's just like the cat, the dog waiting at the door for his owner. It's like the cat who knows what's going on telepathically. You can connect with people in your life that are at a great distance on the other side of the planet and you can sense and you can feel what's going on and you can send light. This is the work, the, uh, what do they call this, light workers? There's people in the world today that call themselves being light workers. Is this what it is? I don't know. Well, to some extent that absolutely is. You know, light workers is all about trying to open experience that we're having on this side to the full realization and of our beings in the divine. So all of these things are light work, but when we are sending light to a person who is somewhat intransigent, somewhat unwilling to depart in peace because their grievances are so compelling as, as confirming and validating their identity, I guess, that um, they don't want to let them go. And the you're believing that you can't depart from your pain. You can't get through and past your pain. Your pain has almost, like, defined you. And what I'm saying is there, the pain has, there is no pain on the other side to have defined you. There's no reality on this side to have defined you. You are freely mobile 
all you have to do is will to move and you will move. So go. Go into the now. And then we move toward it because we embrace that as our life. Realizing without guilt, without shame, without regret, without pain, that it was always available to us and to all, it always will be, we move toward it in full endorsement and embracement without looking back. And that's obedience. It is, that's what obedience is. Yes. And so that concept of obedience is so different than the concept we have or have been taught. We think of it as effort, effort, effort. But what you're describing is letting go of the effort of the ego, which is bound to fail anyway, and is too much work. So just release it, relinquish it, let it go, and step into being, step into, uh, you know, come into harmony with the divine self, and that's obedience. But it does require that willingness, that little willingness, and then that it means that we have to want to see clearly. We have to realize that we don't see clearly. We have to realize that there are obstacles to love, that we aren't living love. We aren't loving ourselves, each other, and God as things are. Mm-hmm. And that there's no heaven for us until we can and do. Right. That's There isn't some time where we're going to wake up and everything is just hunky-dory now in our own mind. We have the freedom to choose how our mind is going to line up. Right. All our ducks have to be in a row in heaven. We have to be able to give and receive love in heaven. As it really is. The false world that tries to disguise and refashion love is not going to uh, work in heaven. Being adaptable to this world and being conformed to this world therefore means that we are a stranger in a strange world in heaven and that we won't be able to be comfortable with it. And if we're not comfortable, then okay, metanoia is our salvation at that point. Metanoia comes through Christ and Christ's vision shows us a way out when we can't find a way out to save our everlasting aspirations we are on a track like a ride that just goes on and on and we cannot get off the track we cannot shut the thing down salvation is when we are able to arrive at metanoia be able to see through this madness, be able to see light at the end of the tunnel, and be able to grasp at it, and have assistance in getting there, across that bridge into the abundant life of eternity. And, and you know, we be restored, be redeemed to ourselves truly are, as we always have been, as we always will be, to live in ignorance of our truth when it's so majestic is hell. So why embrace hell? Why continue in hell? 
That's the whole question. We would only do it out of madness. We're called to sanity and it's just a step away. And that sanity is to realize that Jesus said from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. That means us too. Until we get to a moment of metanoia. And metanoia is translated as? Repentance. Right. Which would literally mean change your mind. So, what this podcast has done, for those who listen to it, it's taken, it's allowed them to change their mind from thinking about the apocalypse now as the end of the world as the as we know it, with the collapse of our economy and the collapse of society and all of that that brings fear and with it judgment and uh, attack because that's what we're conditioned by the ego to do. So that all of that fear and attack that's, that's boiling and bubbling into the surface right now by across the globe, the whole world is in a is in a fever pitch of fear and attack going on right now. You know, families are are isolated and quarantined together. And what are they doing? They're doing the fear and attack with each other. There's fathers attacking sons and, and sons attacking fathers. That's happening right now because they're in close proximity and outside the door, there's this uh, craziness going on. And so the ego continues to do what the ego does, the fear and attack. And so it's reached a fever pitch. And that's what we're, you know, the apocalypse now. That's what people understand when they hear the term apocalypse now. That's what they can relate to. But what we're presenting, you and I, talking about the spiritual matters, is a different apocalypse now. It takes that and gives it a whole different meaning, which which really means to step into your essence, to step into your being, to become... able to love yourself, God, and others because of your knowledge of who you are, who you truly are, not this ego seeking validation. That's not who you are. The true essence of who you are is God created you holy, and so you remain holy. Just because you, it seems to be different, and you think maybe I, I'm beyond repair, I, I'm unredeemable, but that is not true. So the apocalypse, the revelation, is that you can now, now, right now, have a relationship with God in which being obedient is effortless. And part of metanoia, and I really want to emphasize this, is really my cap on on everything I've said. I want to drive home a realization to people that would accept what I'm saying. Please realize that you are not called to see yourself as a walking wounded, to see yourself as damaged goods, or to see others that way either. But you are called to a life of remaining as God created you in grandeur in love, in joy, in light. You do not have to be in enmity with God as being separate.
because you never could have been and you never were separate. But you need to deliberately join with God. You need to embrace the oneness and the wholeness that God has created you with in mercy and in kindness. I mean, the goodness of God has been revealed in this and it is staggering, it is unspeakable. You know, but in it being ours, we could exist in a so-called life without ever acting on it, without ever claiming it. But all along, we'd have to live in ignominy and in enmity, and without enmity with ourselves, enmity with others, and enmity with God, because of some really distorted ideas that were producing antagonism in us, that were comprising our baggage, that was, we were unwilling to let go of these cherished uh, grievances. So they block our vision. They block our ability to love. And we can put the shield down, we can move forward, we can take the hand of the Savior and cross that bridge to the altar and lay all of these things down and receive a full load of mercy and grace that will last us forever and transform not only our understanding of true life, but actually transform, you know, what we think now is life here on this side. And when we do that, we're in a safe place. And when we're in a safe place, we radiate from our heart the love that's naturally existent. And it permeates the universe. It's non-local. It affects everyone, even at a distance. Uh, Certainly in close proximity, But there's evidence that when people are emotionally connected, then you can separate them in a great distance and they can still communicate like telepathically. So you can send light to anyone that you're emotionally connected with. And this is what needs to be happening at this particular time. There needs to be... Right. You're actually... You seem to be in time, in the now, but there's a timelessness. Right. There, it's as if you had a wormhole into another dimension. That's what the now really is functioning. You know, uh, there's been a, a book that was written, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And this is very fascinating because they've done scientific research and used methods to ensure that there was no way that this dog knew when the owner was coming home and but uh the, but it did and there was a percentage it's of not only dogs but it's cats yes cats too you know the thing about cats is they know when you're going to take them to the veterinarian yeah. if you sure think do. you're going to take the cat to a vet sure the cat disappears and and a lot of veterinarians know this and so they don't make cat appointments because they always cancel because the owner can't find the cat because they had the intention to take the cat to the vet and the cat says, no, I'm not going, I'm out of here. And it runs away. So there's a telepathic thing going on with the cats that are attached, 
emotionally connected to their owners, and that's not every cat. And there's dogs that are emotionally connected to their owners, and that's not every dog. But when you have that emotional connection, uh, cats and dogs, with people, then they can sense things. They know when you're going to take them to the vet. They know when you're going to come home. They'll wait for you at the door. I mean, so if cats and dogs can telepathically connect with a human, why can't humans connect with each other? And that's what sending the light is about. Of course. But for, for when you step into the mystical level of awareness and you're in that space, you must also recognize that you have work to do. And it's not work on getting yourself to heaven because you're already understanding that that's a present moment reality. But the work that needs to be done is to send the light to those people you're emotionally connected to be able to have a, a spiritual practice where you can send the light. It's just like the cat, the dog waiting at the door for his owner. It's like the cat who knows what's going on telepathically. You can connect with people in your life that are at a great distance on the other side of the planet and you can sense and you can feel what's going on and you can send light. This is the work, uh, what do they call this, light workers? There's people in the world today that call themselves being light workers. Is this what it is? I don't know. Well, to some extent, that absolutely is. You know, Lightworkers is all about trying to open the experience of, that we're having on this side to the full realization of our beingness in the divine. So all of these things are light work, but when we are sending light to a person who is somewhat transigent, somewhat unwilling to depart in peace because their grievances are so compelling as, as confirming and validating their identity, I guess, that uh, they don't want to let them go. And the whole thing here, the concern is that, you know, there is no you're telling that your pain body is holding you there. You're believing that you can't depart from your pain. You can't get through and past your pain. Your pain has almost, like, defined you. And what I'm saying is there, the pain has, there is no pain on the other side to have defined you. There's no reality on this side to have to find you. You are freely mobile, and all you have to do is will to move, and you will move. So go. Go into the now. We're uniting with God Most High. We're invoking and inviting His its presence with us, the presence of the Holy Spirit with us to bring us knowledge, to lift us above the battlefield so that we could have an objective understanding more so of our circumstances and our position and our uh, intentions and our strategy. The thing here is that we need to understand that there is something called salvation. There is something called a savior. These are precious terms. 
they are precious to us because they are our life. Christ, for me to live, is what? For me to live is Christ. Quote, unquote. Okay, from the Bible, from the New Testament. For me to live is Christ. And salvation cannot be derided, in my view, undermined, or cheapened. Bible says, New Testament says, I was bought with a price. What does this mean? Now, we've had this discussion somewhat. I don't know if you... I won't open that whole can of worms right now, but I will remind you of this and say, you know, salvation is the doorway to freedom, to our freedom. But it wasn't, it wasn't given. Did suffer on our behalf, in my view. He chose a difficult path. He chose to be the bridge. He chose to be the opener of the way, and we would not be where we are in this time period as individuals, as cultures, as societies. As humanity, if that, if, if that had failed, it didn't fail. And this is salvation. Salvation is available, is within our grasp, and this is precious. Now, when you go to the Course in Miracles to understand what salvation is, what the atonement is, from Jesus' perspective, who gives the course, this brings us to an understanding that there are saviors, and Jesus is not the only savior. He is the archetype. He is the first one. He is the one who opened the way. But now, he is revealed to be our true self. Actually, we are all Christ in truth on the other side. He is us. He is the, the New Testament says he is just our elder brother. He's revealing our true identity. That's right. He, our identity is his identity. We share that identity. And we together share it he is what? The Son of God. So, so are we. We are all children of the Most High. We were all, you know, together as a joined beingness. And this is a magnificent beauty to realize. Christ is not separate from us as our judge, as our master. We can use these words. But what will the judgment be according to the course of it then? You know, that you were never condemned, and you, there was no need in heaven for forgiveness, because you could not have changed from the perfection in which you were created. Any attempt to change, any belief on your part that there has been change happening, change happening it's going to fall away when you cross over. It's not going to be real. 
This is the grace of God. There is no greater love and no greater grace imaginable to the human mind. This is it. Now that's the meaning of salvation. 